We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Grandmaster Eugene Perlstein joining us from Massachusetts, his home state. Eugene, thanks a lot for coming on Perpetual Chess. Sure. Thank you for having me, Ben. And for those who don't know Eugene, I think most of you will. He's one of the top 50 players in the United States and has been a regular on the U.S. chess scene for a long time. I had the misfortune of playing him in around 2000. Neither of us remember exactly when, but I know it was a short game with a predictable result. But other than that, I, I haven't had too much chance to talk to, to Eugene, but I've been been a fan of uh, your work, your opening research, and I know you've been playing actively, which a lot of chess teachers don't manage to do. So, um, Eugene, uh, how do you do it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, Ben. Um, I would say that I'm one of the few people who, um, when they pursue chess, I was doing a lot of other stuff. For instance, I went to UMBC which is well known for chess scholarships. And while a student at UMBC, I continued playing chess and pursuing a degree in computer science. And then I got a full-time job um, working for a big software company while still playing chess. So I was one of the late uh, boomers, uh, bloomers got, getting the grandmaster title in 2006 when I was 26 years old. It's funny to think of that as a late bloomer. Um, so I, we have a lot to cover obviously, but you, are you still working in the software industry or, or, uh... um, after working there for about 10 years, I decided that, uh, you know, I've kind of had enough and now I would say that primarily I'm coaching, uh, mostly coaching, playing a little bit, doing lectures and mostly involved with chess full time these days. Nice. Yeah. And as you join us, you're doing a, a chess camp and we're, we're recording this at night. So I want to thank you because I know you must be a little bit tired after yeah, uh, lots of kids, lots of chess. Uh, we were watching actually a movie Magnus Carlsen today. So it was fun. Oh, nice. That's yeah, that's uh, the kids enjoy it. And it's a nice little break for the teacher. So I'm sure uh, that helps keep you fresh. 
I, I actually still haven't seen Magnus Carlsen, even though we had Macaulay Peterson on who was involved in the production of it. And my kids, my students tell me it's great, but I, have, I haven't had a chance to check it out yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, I loved it. Uh, all the coaches on my camp loved it. The kids loved it, too. So I think it's a really well-done documentary and uh, highly recommended. Okay. Um, so you, where in Massachusetts do you live, Eugene? Let's start with the basics. Sure. Uh, I live just outside of Boston. Okay. And uh, I know that you came from the Soviet Union many years ago, and we, we crossed paths a few times. We're close to the same age. And that's, that's where you grew up once you came to the U.S., correct? Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, I had a pretty big start in the Soviet Union or in Russia, depending on how you want to call it, because my dad uh, had his own chess club. Uh, so basically, chess for me was more like, you know, an activity after school. I just picked it up without really trying. And I got, I remember, as far as number four in the basically all of Russian championship under 14. And that's when I came to the U.S. after getting candidate master there. Okay. Oh, wow. So you were already fairly, um, fairly far along in your chess development by then. Yep, yep. Although I remember that back then there were no FIDE rating. So my rating when I first came to the U.S. was uh, non-existent. And the very first tournament people asked me, what's your rating? Well, I said, I have no rating. And of course, they put me in the unrated section, right. <laughs> which I won pretty easy. <laughs> well, hopefully you made a little money before they, uh, um, before they caught on. Yep, yep. And then right after that, I was told, all right, so you're probably candidate master. You should play in the expert section. And my very first big major success in the U.S., when I was 15 years old, I won the World Open outright uh, under, uh, under 2200. Nice. That's a nice chunk of change for a 15-year-old. Yep, yep. Although I was provisionally rating, so I didn't quite get the full 10 grand prize, but I was still pretty happy with the okay. whatever it was, like either 3 grand or 1500. Right. Well, I think with the benefit of hindsight, we can't, we can't really argue with their decision, right? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> you, probably, you probably didn't belong in that section. Um, uh, funny enough, the very next year, I was playing board one in the last round in the open section. So I wow. was that good. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And your dad, just uh, for the listeners, I dug a little research and, you know, I know there's Perlstein, there's there's a few Soviet Perlsteins, but I imagine I found the right one. He's rated about 2380 FIDE. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, Mikhail Perlstein. Yeah, yeah. So, so quite a player. And also, since he was active about 25 years ago, that was the, that was a little more rare back then to have a rating like that. Um, yep, yep. And he pretty much stopped playing chess when he came to the US, although I, I would say he was about like Solid 23, probably 2,400 strength player. And okay. uh, you probably know the reason because it's uh, tournament life for, you know, for chess player is up and down, whereas he started coaching right away, and that's how he made his livelihood. Okay, and uh, I'm sure your family has talked a little bit about what went into the decision, and I guess you were old enough to be, like, maybe privy to the conversation. So why did your family decide to, to come to the United States? I would say primarily because of me, um, I was the only child, and as you probably were in Russia, army service is mandatory. Right. And uh, most pl uh, chess players that I know who uh, who stayed in Russia ended up going to university, which made them avoid the army service. But back then, it was the first uh, war with Chechnya, so things were kind of getting. Um, really dark, plus 
you know, financial crisis looming. So my family said they don't want to take any chances. Since I'm the only child, they were afraid I may get sent to Chechnya or something like that. So uh, that was one of the major reasons to emigrate. Okay. And where, where in Russia were you? Uh, so I lived, uh, I would say that I, I was born in the Ukraine part of Russia, near Kiev, the capital. But most of my life in Russia, I lived in a small town near Korsk, uh, which is, uh, for those of you who are World War II buffs, the heaviest tank battle took place in 1943 there. Okay. Um, and uh, once you came over... Uh you you got into chess. How was the adjustment? Like, was it hard? How was your English? Um, I would say it was relatively smooth for me, you know, because I was a kid. I liked everything. I loved to travel. Um, picked up the language in school pretty easily. Wasn't as easy for my dad and for my mom. Um, and as far as chess is concerned, I probably met the right people at the right time. For instance, uh after a year of living in the U.S., I met Ginger, who was my first coach, kind of major coach after my dad. And we kind of clicked right away. And, you know, he used to be top 10 player, Kamsky's coach. And so me working with Ginger sort of opened a completely new world of yeah, chess. Yeah, this and is so, um, legendary mm -hmm. chess player and teacher Roman Gingersfeely. I think most people just know him as Jinji, but just in case... Yeah, his last name is very difficult to pronounce. It's Jinji Hashvili. It's a uh, Soviet-Georgian last name. And, uh, you know, he's probably more known for his chess videos in the chess world than for his work on chess.com recently where he is uh, commenting on members' games and such. Yeah, well, I'm old enough to remember when he played pretty actively, and he was also kind of a legend in the Skittles rooms and the old World Opens and stuff like that, because he he was willing to take on all comers in Blitz. So um, he often drew a crowd. So he, he's, Oh, yeah, he, he is uh, in incredibly strong in Blitz, and I witnessed it myself. So uh, funny enough, we never got to play Blitz because <laughs> we're kind of friends, but uh, I would feel how strong he is when he analyzes. Yeah, for sure. And, and Eugene, we've had a few discussions with different guests here on the podcast about the Soviet school of chess and to what extent uh, they really had their own methodology. I feel like there's probably not been anyone better qualified to talk about it than you since uh, your dad was a, a chess teacher in the Soviet Union and you also got to study under uh, legends like Jinji. So what's your take on what drove the success of uh, Soviet-era chess players? Well, I would say it's a very simple answer because uh, in Russia or in the Soviet Union, chess was as big as baseballs in the U.S. Wow. So it was actually a lucrative profession for uh, a lot of players who maybe weren't as good to go into coaching. So, you know, my dad was probably earning more than an engineer, like an average engineer teaching chess. Wow. And so you had tons and tons of these very qualified, strong coaches all over Soviet Union. And also keep in mind, chess clubs and pretty much all clubs were free. Uh, so kids would just go to, uh, like, including myself, to a chess club like that and just hang out, play chess. And uh, it's basically a pure numbers game. Eventually you have tons and tons of kids who are good. Uh, we competed against each other all the time. There was a small regional competitions. Then you go a little bit 
more to state competitions than the whole country competitions. That's how I qualified to all of Russian competition under the age of 14. Um, and through this kind of competitive spirit and tons and tons of good coaching, uh, kids just got good. That makes sense. Um, so, and, and the second thing I would mention is that there were these special chess schools. You probably heard of the famous Botvinnik chess school. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I was in what is called the Karpov chess school. Um, they actually they they renamed it a few times. At one point, it was called something else. It was the Belyavsky and Mikhalchishin chess school from the Ukraine. Then they changed it to the Karpov chess school. Uh, but it doesn't really matter. There were all these top schools where all the best coaches would, would teach. It would be like a mini mini camp, like maybe two weeks at a time, uh, maybe about two times a year. And it was really like hardcore chess, you know, from you, you get up, you start running, jogging, then you do chess, then you eat, then you play soccer, then you do more chess, then you hang out with your friends, and it's just nonstop. Wow. Uh yeah, that's um, that definitely explains um, the success to a large to a large extent. Do you think there was anything uh, related to the teaching? Like, how was the material presented to you to the to the extent that you remember? I mean, I'm sure. It was- um, well, most of the lectures were uh, presented by strong grandmasters or international masters in a lecture type of format, where uh, they would usually explain to us some ideas, and we would take notes, almost like in a lecture hall setting. Um, and there was a little bit of informal coaching as well, because we would play against each other. Our games would get analyzed. I remember the famous coach, Igor Zaitsev, who was Karpov's coach at some point. He's still alive. He had the private session with me where he would kind of evaluate me, and he said, ah, this kid is okay. He may one day become a GM, but nothing special. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Um, and was there a special emphasis on end games or was it kind of holistic treatment of chess? Um, I would say it was pretty much everything starting from openings uh, all the way to the end games. And the coaches would be good about sort of figuring out each kid's um, weaknesses. And then I would get a notebook and we would have our homework. And for instance, if end game was my weakness, I would go back to my town with my own personal coach and I would work on eliminating my weaknesses and then I would come back next session and kind of have a re- review with the with one of the top GMs there. Okay. And someone like Zaitsev who I I assume is the Zaitsev variation is uh named after him. Is that is that right? Him? Absolutely. Yeah, he was uh sort of known in in Russia as the opening theoretician even though himself he wasn't such a highly ranked GM but uh I remember he was given six of the best kids, and we were like candidate master strength, blindfold simul. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, so someone like uh, GM Zaitsev, when he's working with you, was that uh, paid for by the, the Soviet government? Yep. I think at that point, it might have been Soviet government. Maybe later, when the Soviet Union fell apart, it was private sponsorships that sponsored these chess schools. But uh, I remember that none of the kids had to kind of pay from their own pockets. Okay. And your dad also worked for the government as a teacher. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, thanks, Eugene. That's a, that's a lot of insight as to, to the secret sauce, if, <laughs> to the extent that there is any other than like hard work and a really solid infrastructure. Um, so 
how did you find the chess culture when you made your way to Massachusetts? I mean, I guess it yeah, was... Yeah, uh, it was totally shocking because uh, there was pretty much, it was kind of free-for-all. There was just chess tournaments, you want to show up, you want to play, you don't want to play, you don't want to play. It was very relaxed, laid-back atmosphere. Um, there were no teams, like in Russia, where a coach would bring the whole team in of players. Uh, I, fe- I felt it was more relaxing atmosphere and not as competitive as in Russia. And also I felt that uh, an average chess player that I faced was relatively weak, uh, given how much chess coaching I got in Russia, especially in the end game. Yeah. That's why I asked about the end game. I mean, Russians have this reputation of being such technicians. But it may, so maybe it's just that it's more neglected here than that it was specially emphasized there. Or, well, and, yeah, and also keep in mind the U.S. chess is more like if you like chess, you, you pick up a couple opening books, you may get better, but you don't have a formal education, right? You don't have somebody telling you, well, your weakness, your weakness is your end games, you should work on it. Right. And as a result, most people who are talented in chess, they get to a certain level, but they may still be really bad at end games, right? Right. Um, so that was, I think, the difference is that U.S. is more talent-based approach, uh, whereas in Russia, we each had a very formal kind of chess education. Okay. Um, all right. So, Eugene, let's flash forward to when you won the Sanford. I know you, you you won a scholarship to UMBC, and you stuck with chess while you were getting your education there. And then you uh, – what year was it that you won the Sanford Fellowship? Yeah, I would say that the year 2000 was my most successful year. I was about 20 years old. I won the U.S. Junior Championship. And right after winning that, I found out that I won the Sanford Fellowship. That's incredible. Yeah, and uh, I mean it's it's such a great um, it's such a great thing that exists for American players. And uh, I know that around that time you made some some big improvements. So how did that change your your training and playing regimen? I would say that for the first time in my life, I became a full time uh, chess player because even in Russia, I was combining school and chess. And it kind of opened my eyes on what real hard work really is in chess, because honestly, I wasn't such a hard working chess player to begin with. (laughs) Um, So I basically had to create a structural way for me to study chess, which I think is pretty difficult, um, you know, looking back at it, because I'm basically my own boss. Right. And I can easily take a day off and not study chess and nobody will notice. Right. So it's one of those things that is probably the most difficult part of winning the Sanford Fellowship, where everything was basically up to me. And I had to make the decisions where to play chess, how to study chess, which tournaments to play in. Um, But I think I enjoyed it for the most part, although I think toward the end of it, I kind of got burned out a little bit. So how much time did you end up studying chess during that period? Like what was like how many hours a week do you think? Um, it was pretty much insignificant compared to how much I should have studied chess after <laughs> I met uh, Dorfman. And I'm not sure if the audience knows who uh, Yosef Dorfman is. He is a famous coach who is originally from Russia, actually Ukraine part of Russia. And he was Gary Kasparov's coach during his first first two matches against Karpov. And then he's also famous as a Bakros, Etienne's Bakros coach in France. So what was the the experience of working with a, a teacher of um, that repute like? like what? Yeah, after I realized, you know, working 
working with him, I realized that I'm basically nowhere close to working at real chess because he was basically working at that time with Topolov, uh, a little bit with Gelfand. So right. he was comparing me to those guys, right? Right. And he told me that, he told me the story about Topolov that I still remember. He basically said, after working for 10 hours straight with Topolov, the only thing that kept kept him from going from not like falling apart is that during the midday break they were playing tennis. <laughs> huh. Wow, that's so. Basically, I think I was spending about four or five hours a day, but it was nowhere close to these top guys. Okay, and and what would you study with with those four to five hours a day? Um, with Dorfman, we would mostly work on openings, and the, his approach was quite interesting. It was like. Uh, I don't know what the proper name of this method. It would I would call it the bulldozer approach, <laughs> where we just look at every single move, nonstop, and just keep going variation, variation, and just keep going. Sometimes deep into the end game, and basically the idea is that you just exhaust the position so much that at some point it, it becomes so natural to you, and you can play it with your eyes closed. It's like a computer, basically. Yeah, and funny enough, we didn't really use the computer back then. I mean, the computers were, I think, pretty good. I think it was pre-Houdini and pre-Ripka. Um, but, but I would say that we would check our analysis a little bit with engines. But for the most part, it was uh, totally sort of analysis. Okay. And would you look at moves that were pretty clearly bad? Or would it just be yes, like, wow. That's, that's what was the big surprise to me. Because I'm more of an intuitive chess player. I would only look maybe at like one, two, maximum three, four moves. But with him, we'd probably look at like 10 moves. Okay, so maybe with the idea of finding more of those uh, fabled invisible moves. Probably, yeah. The, it was completely foreign approach to me. But it is basically like hard work. If you're working the fields, you know, uh, in the middle of the summer, well, that's how it felt like working with him. With okay, chess. so like calculating. Basically yeah, nonstop not. calculating, nonstop just kind of like analysis, comparing ideas. And even after like two, three hours analyzing one position, we would come back to it next day. Okay. And, and as a 20-year-old with like less financial concern than most 20-year-olds and able to play anywhere in the world, like where did you end up playing um, during that um, period? I actually mostly played in open tournaments and a few GM norm tournaments. Uh, for instance, one of my first GM norm tournaments was in New York, uh, either around 2000, 2001 where I played uh, with such strong players as Yudasin. Um, let's see, who are some of the top GMs back then? Igor Novikov, who is Ukrainian GM. Right. To live in the U.S. And uh, I remember Hikaru Nakamura finishing last. He and I were losing pretty much all the games. <laughs> um, but it was a great tournament. I think it was organized by Susan Polgar uh, because, you know, American... Uh, chess players, especially youngsters, we really didn't get enough opportunities as far as round-robin tournaments are concerned. And the open tournaments were not as instructive because it's up and down a lot. You get paired against a GM or you get pa paired against like a week 2200 player. Yeah, it can definitely be harder to get norms that way, I would guess. Um, so did you have it? Did you take any trips to any like uh of the fabled european tournaments yeah i guess the more famous one that i played is in germany called bad visa uh it's this small resort town in the middle of nowhere 
I think it's near Munich. But every year around October, there were like around three to four hundred chess players playing in it. Okay, wow, that's huge. Yep, and uh, that's where I met Dorfman for the first time. I remember Valakitin, this famous Ukrainian chess grandmaster who is now high 2660s or 2680s. He was like uh, 10 years old at that time. <laughs> um, so basically, at some point, all the top GMs sort of play, played in these fable tournaments. Okay. Um and what do you have any do you have like what you would consider a, a career highlight from your time playing? Um my probably best performance was a little bit after the Sanford Fellowship. So I did not quite become a grandmaster. I think I got maybe a few norms. But uh Maurice Ashley organized this tournament in New York City called Generation Chess, where for the first time there was this rule no draws. Uh, it's kind of now this, his his trademark, right? And there are many tournaments now that there's no draws, but that was the first tournament where there was a specific rule, no draws, maybe either uh, no draws in general or before move 30. Um, but I remember winning that tournament outright. It was a round robin with the round to spare. That's, that's quite impressive. <laughs> yep. Uh, I remember Elvis played... Uh, uh, Yudasin as well, uh, Larry Christensen, Irina Krush, Vara Kobian, uh, tons of strong IMs played in it. I remember just winning that tournament with the round to spare and even losing with, to Elvis in the last round with White, I still got a GM norm. Wow. So to the extent that you remember, like, um, how did you envision your career at that point? Like, did you have, a, I'm sure you were consumed with becoming Grandmaster, but did you have like concrete goals beyond that or thoughts about like what you were going to do um with your life professionally well i think working with dorfman really showed me what it's like to be in the top 10 or how much time i, I would have to study if i want to ever reach top 10 and that was pretty much unrealistic right off the bat for me um so i basically focused on kind of smaller goals like play and i played tons of u.s championships try to qualify to u.s championships while basically pursuing my education and uh, working full-time. Okay. Um, and what made you decide to work full-time rather than like uh, go straight into to chess teaching? Um, that's a good question. I would probably say that the ma major reason is because, you know, it was relatively safe paycheck where... You know, I could easily play chess and not worry about income, more like a psychological uh, right. cushion rather than, you know, I could I could probably make it teaching chess and playing chess at that time, but it would be really stressful. Whereas like uh, working in a really nice um, job gave me that stability, that financial stability where I didn't think about prizes. Right. And I feel like that helped me in some of the major tournaments. For instance, the Foxwood Open that I won in 2006, I managed to beat a couple of strong GMs there, including Mikhailovsky with Black, and that gave me the last GM norm, and I tied for first. So these kind of uh, tournaments, I think I played without worrying, uh, and that helped me, I think. And were you still studying? Once you, once you transitioned into to working, were you still studying chess a decent amount? 
Somehow I found time to study chess, although not anywhere as I would like, but it was probably a good one, two hours a day, maybe five to six hours every every week or so. Yeah, that's that's pretty good for, for a working stiff. Um, so, and then you eventually got tired of uh, working in software. Yep, uh, a couple years ago, after working... Um, 10 years or so for a big software company, I decided that now it's time for me to focus on teaching chess more. Uh, since I was always coaching chess throughout my work, I had always two, three students. I decided to just take on more students and I uh, kind of never looked back. I really love this lifestyle. Um, I love my students. I love teaching chess. And around that time, chess.com gave me a couple of opportunities to do I had my own show called Boston Blitz Brawl, which was a lot of fun. I did a bunch of videos for chess.com. So a little bit of everything um, made me go into chess full time. Okay. Well, Eugene, everybody wants to know how to get better at chess. So I think with your experience teaching, and I know you work with like you know some, some pretty good players, um, th- some of whom uh, pressured you to come on the podcast. So thank you, Isaac, and whoever else, uh, whoever else um, pressured, pressured <laughs> yeah, you into joining I, us today. I have a lot of a lot of students. Funny enough, the range of my students, I would say, go from like twelve hundred to twenty seven hundred and twenty seven hundred feet. That is. Wow! Can you can you reveal who that is? Um, probably I can reveal, but uh, I'm not sure if it's like a big secret. But I'm, he's not really my student he's more of my you know friend who i help out once in a while right it's, and uh, it's Gini, uh nayer who won the world open a few times in a row right of course yeah and you probably broke 2700 he's not quite you know i can't claim that he's my student but i did work with him a little bit um right. and i feel like having because uh, i have a lot of friends in the chess world and i, I don't mind just getting together and work with a few strong players so that really gives me a good perspective. Yeah, it's probably mutually beneficial. Um, and I know that you've you've done some some pretty intensive work on openings in particular. So I'm sure even if uh, someone like Nair can calculate a little bit better, um, you can still contribute some ideas. Oh, yeah. It was purely openings work at this point. Yeah. Okay. So when you get a new student, um, what's, what, what do you do? Like what's, what's your first lesson like? Oh, it's, it's actually quite easy. Basically, all my lessons are individually uh, sort of geared to each student. And the very first thing I do is I look at their games. And their games pretty much reveal to me their weaknesses. Okay. Um, well, some of them also strengths, but mostly weaknesses. And then I try to work on their weaknesses. Uh, sometimes it's opening theory. Sometimes it's end game. Sometimes it's calculation. Uh, but sometimes it's pure psychology. I mm-hmm. have a lot of students who are extremely good chess players, but they just make really bad psychological decisions. Like and I just have to work with psychology. Like what? Um, let me think of a good example. For instance, being uncertain about themselves, like self-confidence things. Uh-huh. Like being afraid to make a mistake, um, not trusting your intuition. Uh, getting into time trouble, all these things kind of span from the same psychological problems. Okay, and they're basically a lack of confidence, you would say? I would say most of these uh, lack of confidence, sometimes maybe uh, they, they just don't understand certain basic practical things. 
Like, I'll give you an example. For instance, a lot of players think that when your opponent is in time trouble, you should play quickly, right? So they don't have time to think. Well, this is probably one of the biggest sins that I've seen uh, all chess players make from like 1200 to, I even seen strong masters do that. Uh, whereas my philosophy is if your opponent has pretty bad position, it doesn't matter if they have three minutes or three hours, right? They're not going to get out of it. So if you just play good, solid chess, there's no need to blitz it. You're still going to outplay them. What if you have a losing position and you're in time trouble? Well, nothing really can help you there. Maybe you can swindle them. Uh, I know Alexander Ivanov, who is a good friend of mine, he is notorious for getting to horrible time pressure. And he literally has like seconds on his clock to make like 10 moves. Uh, he somehow manages to do it. I don't know how, but he's been doing this all his life. But I highly don't recommend this approach. Because, okay. Uh, this is definitely detrimental to one's chess. Okay. And so when you get a new student and you look at their games and you diagnose their strengths and weaknesses, like how many games would you typically look at of theirs? Um, I would say probably like half a dozen games just to get me a good idea, a little bit more, a little bit less. Um, and then the next sta stage is kind of, I want to see them think, I want to hear them think during their games, their thought process. And what I usually like to play with them is this uh, practice chess mode where they're playing and I'm watching them play and they're thinking out loud. And I feel like this is helping too. Okay. Um, so they just, they tell you their analysis? Yeah, or? they're just basically thinking out loud. Like okay. banter chess, except I'm the only listener. Okay. Do you feel like that's a, an accurate representation of what it feels like to play in a tournament though? Um, I would say up to a certain rating, yes, because they all, uh, when I hear my students' thought process, I immediately know what they're missing from the position and where they're kind of wasting their time. Um, whereas probably for a stronger player, somebody who is over 22 or 2300, uh, that may not necessarily be as helpful. Yeah, just because my sense was you mentioned a lot of, uh, a lot of students that you work with, the issues are primarily psychological. And I just wasn't sure how much that would come across in like a game that doesn't replicate sort of the nerves of... Okay. That's true, yeah. For the online practice game, the psychology is not going to be as relevant. Um, it's probably going to mostly show me their chess weaknesses. Okay. And then once uh, you figure out the, their weaknesses, I guess you've, over the years, accumulated a lot of material about like how to address each type of weakness. Oh, yeah. Now it's super easy. I mean, everybody has chess-based databases. Uh, probably right now, more the most time in chess history, there's really good quality material. I would say uh, Agard, uh, you probably heard of him. He yes, does a lot of good stuff. Um, Valakitin wrote a book with his coach, Grabinski, I think called Perfector Chess or something like that. Uh, basically, there are lot, lots and lots of good books out there for various issues such as ca calculation, end game, strategy, tactics, openings, you name it. So okay. There's tons of material. My job as a coach, just basically pointing out to students, okay, you got to work on this, here's a good book, and then they go off and try to fix their problems. Okay. And was there a landmark book for you in your own development? Um, I would say that my system by Nimzovich or Chess Praxis was pretty... Um, eye-opening to me as well as uh, 
the book by Bronstein, 1953 Zurich, which yeah. is a book. Uh, those two books, I would say, were my kind of classics. And um, I don't think I read a lot of books. There were like all these Russian books, like opening books by Geller, by Taimanov that I read. But they were more like these little opening uh, books. They weren't about real, you know, kind of the meat of chess. But I really enjoyed those as well. Okay. And hopping back for a second to your, your own chess development, like how much, how many like formal lessons were you doing with your dad when you were growing up? Um, were you working with him frequently? Uh, probably not. Uh, <laughs> he never coached me one-on-one, like, you know, sit-down coaching. He basically told me, uh, when I was very little, he basically told me, okay, you want to earn some ice cream money, go solve a bunch of studies huh. uh, or go solve a bunch of <laughs> puzzles. And that's how I got into really enjoying solving studies and puzzles and got really good. That That's hilarious. So would he give you a book or just set up a position or what? Yeah, he'll just give me a book and he'll say, for each puzzle that you do, I'll give you, you know, five cents. And, you know, whereas kids who are in the same chess club would solve maybe like 15, 20 puzzles, I would probably solve like 100 puzzles. Okay. And that's how I got better. My four-year-old is in for it now. <laughs> Perfect. So gonna now you got to get him to solve uh, Mason ones or twos and get, get him some ice cream money. <laughs> exactly. Um, nice. Okay. And, and also, while we're on the topic of your development, I had, I had made a note that you mentioned in an interview that uh, when you started working with Jinji, your, your rating went up more than 100 points in just a couple of tournaments. Oh, yeah, it was really uh, incredible. I think I went from like 2375 to about 2500 within like a span of like half a year. The, so <laughs> that's, a, that's kind of mind boggling um, to me and I think a lot of our listeners. So uh, with the benefit of hindsight looking back, how do you think like what clicked? Well, I think I simply did not really understand chess. You know, there's this a lot of these grandmasters use the word chess understanding or I'm not really how, sure how to explain it. But basically, when you look at a position, you immediately know what to do. And Jinji always had that quality. Like, doesn't matter which opening, doesn't matter which game. I just show him a game. He immediately tells me where I went wrong and why. And to me, that always was like mind boggling. And it took me quite a while to get to that point. I think I might, I, when I turned 18, between 18 and 19, I finally kind of clicked. Um, but it's hard for me to kind of pinpoint exactly what, how to describe that quality, other than when you just look at the position, you immediately know the right plan or the right idea or, uh, or the right move. Okay. And what were his, what were training sessions with him like? Um, you mentioned how Dorfman approached it with strictly calculation. What Completely about? opposite of Dorfman. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jinji is, uh, also used to be top 10 in the world. I'm not sure if Dorfman was top 10. Maybe Dorfman was top 20. Uh, but Jinji is a very creative, intuitive chess player. For him, chess kind of came easy. Um, so he would still analyze because he loved to analyze, and he would show me his analysis. And by the way, that was pre-computer error analysis, and uh, it was really spot on. Um, so that was kind of, uh, how I, I got to analyze with Ginger, but basically he was feeding me all these ideas that were basically novelties. Every single opening or every single idea was brand new to me. And I used, I basically was his guinea pig, right? I would test these out ideas and I would win a game. Wow. Pretty, um, well, it sounds like you were a good, 
good guinea pig, <laughs> well-behaved guinea pig for him. Yep, absolutely. I mean, basically all of the books that we wrote, Chess Openings Explained for Black and Chess Openings Explained for White, I played every single of those openings at one point of my career, and they brought me uh, lots of good results. Nice. Yeah, that's, for those who don't know, Chess Openings Explained is, is, Eugene, is Eugene's website, um, which, Eugene, can you tell them the backstory of how the website came into existence? Yeah, sure. So around 2004, 2005, uh, Ginger and I decided to write a book. Basically, everything that we learned, uh, we know about our ideas, our openings. We decided to make a repertoire series for white and for black. And we co-authored it with the famous book author, Lev Albert. So the three of us got together and we wrote, uh, at that time, they became bestsellers. Uh, they're called Chess Openings for Black Explained. A complete repertoire for black and chess openings for white explained. And uh, over the years, basically, the books were selling really well. And recently, you know, with modern day and age, people, you know, simply don't have time to wait for a new edition because opening novelties and ideas change almost every week. So I opened, uh, I created this website called chessopeningsexplained.com, where the idea is that you get the same kind of analysis pretty much instantaneous every week with ideas, uh, new novelties, and a lot of my own games annotated. Uh, so there's lots of videos that people can watch, and I feel this is much easier to learn in this format rather than waiting for a book every year or so. Yeah, I agree. And speaking speaking of which, of your own games, I know that you've managed to, to stay pretty active. You've played in Reykjavik recently and the World Open and I might be missing something in between but let's start with Reykjavik because I, I read your little Q&A on Chess Summit where you mentioned that uh, you played I mean it's obviously in the public record that you played Geary but I thought it was uh, pretty interesting talking reading excuse me reading you talk about that game and that experience so could you tell our listeners about it? Yeah absolutely I mean I would say that uh I have played a lot of strong players in the past. I used to play Nakamura all the time when we were juniors. But recently, I would say Geary, you know, he's almost 2,800. So he's probably the highest rated player I faced maybe ever or at, at the very least in the last five years for sure. So even for me, this was quite an experience because, you know, I consider myself almost like a veteran of chess circles. I've been my very first tournament at the age of 10. And now I'm 37. So I've been playing chess for like 27 years. And then here I play Geary, who is in his young 20s, right? Right. He, he completely surprises me out of the opening in an opening that I feel like I know well. And that's like a sideline for him. <laughs> right. And he completely uh, gets a winning position, like big advantage. I managed to fight back, sacrifice a pawn, get some counterplay. But his technique was like perfect. And I checked with the engine. He didn't make a single mistake. Wow. And did you get to, to talk to him at all about the game? Um, yeah. Uh, I mentioned, yeah, we briefly talked a little bit after the game. And all he told me is he told me where I could have improved out of the opening. And he gave me a computer line that equalizes for white. Okay. <laughs> so you think, so was this a novelty that he played? Absolutely. I mean, at the GM level, let's put it that way. It's a novelty. It's a It's a pretty strong novelty. And now... I have to make only moves just to equalize as white. That tells you how good these guys' preparation is. And did you have the sense that, that he was prepared, like, 
he had prepared for you or he just had that in his back pocket? Um, that's actually a good question. I don't think I'm such a strong player that he would prepare specifically for me. So, which is even more uh, interesting that he had this in his back pocket waiting for somebody else. And he remembered it, right? So one thing to have this idea in your computer, another thing is to remember it. Right, and so, to, to remember what you should have done on top of yeah, that. Yeah, and he even remembered, yeah, the best defense for me, so which was really uh, mind-boggling. Wow, that that's incredible. And when you played him, uh, in the previous week I had uh, GM David Smerden on who played uh, Magnus Carlsen in the Olympiad. So he walked us through a little bit what, what his nerves were like. So were you... Uh, unusually nervous before playing Geary? Um, I wouldn't really say I was nervous because uh, I've been playing chess for such a long time that it's really hard to make me nervous. But it was a little bit uh, exciting, I guess, I feel that if I beat him, that would be quite exhilarating feeling. But I, I actually, I was pretty realistic about going into the game that I think like a draw is not a bad result, you know, if he's especially well prepared. But I didn't know that I would be fighting for my life with White from, like, the opening. So that <laughs> right. was definitely an eye-opening experience. Wow. Um, so how was the rest of your experience in Reykjavik? Um, well, first of all, for those of you who have never played there, highly recommended tournament. Yes. Because uh, it's one game a day. So for all of us Americans, this is a luxury, right, that we can actually hang out, explore the city. Uh, Reykjavik is beautiful but I would say that Iceland is a beautiful country on its own right. Um, I got there a little bit early, a week before the tournament, rented the car, drove and saw the beautiful country. Probably I saw over 100 waterfalls, uh, amazing uh, beaches, hot springs. If you really love hot springs, soaking in that Icelandic natural water, that's an incredible experience. And... Uh, Really a gr- great way to combine vacation and chess. Nice. And and you mentioned offline to me that you're married. Did your wife make the trip as well? Yeah, she actually, I took her with me. And then she left prior to the tournament because for her, watching chess is like watching paint dry. <laughs> right. Well, what I was curious about, I mean, <laughs> I think those of us with uh, significant others can definitely, are, we, we know that our our wives and significant others don't, I mean, who could, who could ask them to sit there and watch the games? Right, right. But I was curious if she, like, you know, trooped around the city and stuff of, of Reykjavik. But uh, the seeing the countryside is really the part that's supposed to be most amazing. I, I played in, I'm, I have mentioned before, I played in the tournament once, but I didn't get to travel around the country yet. So Yeah, yeah. What they, what they do is that for chess players who don't have a lot of time, they offer this uh, chess tour called the Golden Circle. Uh, where you get to see a little bit of the hot springs, the geysers. Uh, I believe you get to see that one of the famous waterfalls. And uh, so it's a really incredible experience. But if you do have time to rent a car, it's even more of an experience because the country is just gorgeous and there is tons of scenery. Excellent. Um, so after, did you play anything in between that and the World Open? Any big events? Yes, I played a big tournament in Chicago Open, which uh, I did... Much better, and then in uh, World Open, I actually tied for, was it fourth or fifth? I don't remember, and I actually won a little bit of prize money. Nice. So you've been pretty active. Yes. Somehow, uh, going back to teaching chess, I got uh, maybe inspired by my students (laughs) to play a little bit more. That's great. And 
you you know you mentioned the Chicago Open and the Reykjavik Open and the World Open. Obviously, uh, we're going to talk about in a second. But um, I I'm curious what what's your take on like how Americans do chess tournaments versus how Europeans do them? Do you have a preference? Um, well, for the most part, the American tournaments can be divided into continental chess tournaments organized by Bill Gorsberg, which are you know the biggest tournaments like Chicago Open, World Open which is just a ba- basically massive open. Usually it's quite well organized. Uh, I like that the games start on time. Uh, hotels are quite nice, but, you know, there's really no time other than to play chess, eat, sleep, and repeat. Uh, whereas in Europe, it's one game a day. You usually get to enjoy a little bit of the scenery. Usually it's in a beautiful place. It's more relaxed, so you may go out after the game with your friends you get actually time to analyze your game with your opponent, which is quite different from the U.S. where you simply don't have time. you got to get ready for the next round. So I feel like European tournaments are more relaxing, whereas U.S. tournaments are quicker, but they're also more stressful. Okay. So you, there's a place for both of them in your heart. <laughs> yes. So I was basically brought up on American Open tournaments, so uh, I really need to fill up my day well because one game a day sometimes feels like too slow for me. But if I have friends who play with me in the same tournament and I love the 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 city uh, or the town where I play, it I can easily combine the two. Okay, and um, I only have a few more questions for you, Eugene. But let's uh, so the World Open. Any memorable experiences there um, this year? Well, uh, this year I I didn't do so good. So let's put it that way. My performance could have been better, uh, but I would say that. Overall, my impression that American chess is getting better almost with every tournament. Because I remember my very first World Open in 1995. That was the expert section. And then in 1996, I played in the open section. And the grandmasters that I faced were, uh, you know, Yermolinsky, John Fedorovitz, uh, I think Serper. But basically, these kind of guys are now coaching chess more than playing chess. So you have tons and tons of these young grandmasters. And yeah. the game that I lost was against a younger grandmaster who had an unbelievable run at the recent U.S. championship, Yaro Jerebuk. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that name. He, he won like first three or four games or something. Yeah, and he also is famous for beating Caruana in that tournament. Right. <laughs> so basically, these are the kind of players now I'm used to playing, young up-and-coming uh, masters or international masters or these really strong young grandmasters. So for me, it's quite an adjustment because I feel one of the older players now, whereas back then I was one of those up-and-coming uh, players. Yeah. Huh. Uh-huh. Times, times change. No one escapes father time. <laughs> yes. And I feel like the average chess, so basically, you know, when I would play World Open, like, you know, back in the night, late 90s, for me to win a game against a 2200 was basically a piece of cake, right? Whereas now, to beat yeah. anybody I, in the world... I, I was that 2200. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go um, ahead. Maybe. I don't remember if it was that easy for me to, to beat you, but I remember in general that I would play, on average, you know, guys who are kind of older and they're like 50s and they were like 2200s, and I would beat them pretty easily. Right. Whereas now, mostly I'm playing these little kids, 
And I'm not sure if it would be easier for me to play a little kid or like uh, a 50-year-old GM. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, they're tactically so sharp. Um, yeah, they're tactically sharp. They're very uh, underrated. And uh, they don't really have problems being tired. You know, two games a day is really tire- tiresome for a lot of players, especially like, you know, once you hit 30 and you go uh, getting closer to 40. Whereas these guys are teenagers, mostly. Uh, some some of them are, you know, I played right next to one of the rounds. Uh, he might have been on your show, the youngest master in the in the U.S. Uh, Christopher Yu, yeah, he Christopher was. Christopher Yu, yeah. So, like, these kids, for them, it's not it's not even challenging. Like, they just sit around, like, play around with their food, or they, they look with their cookies, and then they play chess <laughs> move, and they're just exactly. having fun. Whereas exactly. for me, like, I, for me, this is, like, hard work. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. That's funny. Um, nice. So, Eugene, outside of chess, uh, what else are you into? Um, outside of chess, I love traveling. So, just this past weekend, I came from a little camping trip in New Hampshire, uh, so I love being outdoors. I love traveling. I like swimming um, and just kind of having fun with my friends. Uh, so pretty much all sports I like. And uh, that's about it, I would say. Okay. And uh, so how much time are you spending like trying to improve at chess and between your lessons? Like how chess intensive is your life these days? I would say that I always have a feeling that I don't have enough time to study chess. <laughs> Even yeah. now, after not working full-time, because back then with a full-time job, that was a good excuse. Right. Nowadays, I'm like, well, if I would have studied more, I would have done better the World Open. So it's uh, maybe a constant thing with chess players. Like You always feel like you need more time. And uh, I feel I would have, I, if I had more time, I would maybe become a better chess player. But uh, it's always hard to say. Because chess, I noticed, is probably one of the only sports where the time invested is not quite proportional to the results. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. And and growth is not linear. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I have many students who uh, may study chess month after month for like eight hours every day and then have their rating drop. Right. Whereas I have another student who is totally lazy, doesn't do anything, and then he just like wins a tournament. <laughs> so uh, usually, though, if you do it long enough, if you study chess long enough, the results will will catch up to you, and the rating I feel is a pretty good indicator of your strength. Uh, but nevertheless, it's definitely not linear. And for those, especially youngsters who are listening to us, just because you had a bad tournament. Uh, my advice is to continue studying chess, continue loving the game, and the results usually do catch up. It, chess is probably the most rewarding game, in, where if you if you do uh, put in the effort, eventually the rewards uh, you do reap the rewards. Yeah, definitely a meritocracy. Um, okay, Eugene. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. This was a lot of fun. I feel like we we dug deep into into chess improvement and got a little history in there, so I think people will have enjoyed it. Absolutely. It was great fun chatting with you, Ben. Um, and I guess I'm gathering the best place to reach you is probably Chess Openings Explained. Is that right? Yep. Uh, probably the best way if you have a question about the site or you want to reach me directly, you can go there and uh, click on contact form. 
Uh, you can also reach me on chess.com. My name is quite easy to remember, just my first name, Eugene, and my last name, one word, Eugene Perlstein. You can send me a message there as well. Excellent. All right. Well, Eugene, thanks a lot for coming on, and uh, good luck with your teaching and um, future tournaments. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to perpetualchesspod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.